Make sure your cell phones are muted or turned off or <laughs> deep in your pockets or purse so we don't are not distracted by those. I'll give you a second to do that. All right, at this time I'll ask Wayne Cummings to come forward and ask our class prayer. Well, good morning to one and all. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I get my glasses here working and read, we'll be all right. share the uh, prayers of uh, St. Francis with you and I think I can uh, read it fully. Please listen as I now share with you bearing the title in his own words I think it is the most appropriate prayer <coughs> for any day of the week wherever and whatever they may be. Let us pray. Most high, most glorious God, enlighten the darkness of my heart. Grant me a right and true faith, a certain hope, and a perfect charity, <coughs> feeling and understanding of you, so that I may be able to accomplish your holy and just commands. Amen. Amen. <coughs> Thank you, Wayne. I feel if you'll come bring our lesson, please. morning when you went out to get your newspaper. <laughs> sort of took my breath away. Uh, I guess it's that time of year. It's October, right? Or it's here. So. so we have a happy coincidence today. Uh, if you've been to worship already this morning, you know it's Creation Care Sunday, uh, United Methodist Church. It's the one Sunday of the year that we're reminded of uh, care for creation. And uh, as our schedule of working through the creed uh, unfolded, uh, today is maker of heaven and earth, right? And so um, if you haven't been here, we're working our way through the Apostles' Creed uh, for the next uh, several years. And, uh, <laughs> 
using the, the Nicene Creed as a kind of supplement. Um, I have no idea how long this is going to take, um, but we'll, yeah, there's a lot here. I mean, you can pretty much uh, teach most everything that's in the Bible and most all of theology through the Creed, so it's not as though um, we're going to be uh, bereft of, of material. Uh, just to remind ourselves uh, where we've been, we reminded ourselves that the, the creeds are a confession, right? These are things that we, we believe. These are deep convictions. This is a kind of, uh, we even kind of noted as a kind of a pledge of allegiance, that this is, uh, this is our public confession of our, our, deepest, our deepest convictions um, about, about who God is and our relationship to God. And the, the creed is, is Trinitarian in form, right? And uh, we see that from the very beginning. Uh, believing God, God is named as Father right away. Believing God the Father Almighty. And this Father is first of all the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ as well as the Father uh, of us all. And we talked about uh, God being Almighty. Uh, that God isn't just almighty in the sense of uh, just being uh, unlimited power in that sense, but it's this God who is the Father who has been revealed as the God who is love, right? That this, this is the God who uh, isn't in love with power like we can be, right? It's hard. Um, I mean, I'm a... I'm a college professor, I have all kinds of power, right, over this little tiny fiefdom, right, called the classroom. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I, I, but God is not in love with power, right? God, God's not the power guy, but uh, God has the power of, of love, right? Um, that somehow God is capable, uh, God is capable of using uh, whatever God has at God's disposal to, to bring about God's purposes, which is ultimately uh, to draw all things into communion with God. Um, and, and we'll see that uh, today. So now we come to the, the end of that phrase. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And the Nicene Creed adds what? Anybody remember? Of all things visible and invisible. Right? Just a little coda there. Right? Maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And one of the things we want to look about, look at the creed, and that comes up today, is I mean, the creeds are historical documents. They weren't created in a vacuum, um, and so they're they're created to address real concerns that the early church is dealing with. Uh, they are trying to, as we said, they're um, they weren't written uh, primarily just to sit in uh, an office like mine and think deep thoughts. Um, but they were, they were used for instruction, right? They were used for instruction. They were used in uh, liturgy, right? Uh, 
baptismal liturgy and the Eucharist liturgy. So at those, uh, and we use them in, in our funeral liturgies, at those points of human life, uh, we want to be reminded of who we are and who God is. Um, and that's, that's often that we need to be reminded because the world uh, continually tells us each day um, who we ought to think we are. And often those are in conflict, aren't they? At least in tension many times. So we need to be reminded um, often. Um, and what we see in the creeds is we see some of the pressure points, and we see it today um, in this affirmation that God is maker of heaven and earth. And for, for a lot of us who grew up in uh, the church, which I know is not all of you, but many of you, um, this seems pretty obvious, right? That God is, God is creator. Um, for, for a lot of you, um, you, you probably can't even remember when you learned that. It was so early, right? Uh, some of you heard uh, the Genesis creation stories uh, when you were so young that you, you can't uh, remember. Beware of retired professors bearing gifts. <laughs> yeah. If you haven't passed the, uh, I'll yeah, <laughs> if you haven't passed the offering baskets, or send, you can send those around if you haven't. Uh, Got to keep things going here. So one of the things that uh, people notice in the creeds is that not everything in Scripture is in there. Obviously, it's a summary. And sometimes you might ask, well, why are some things in there and other things that also seem pretty obvious aren't in there? Uh, so, for example, when we get to the second section of the creed about Jesus, we'll notice that there's almost nothing about Jesus' life and teaching, which seems pretty important. Um, and we'll talk about, like, why is that when we get there? So part of the answer to that is that the creeds were written developed in a, in a period of time when there were certain uh, issues about which the church had to be clear. And we see that today. Because even though it's obvious to us, those of us who grew up in the church, and, and we, are, uh, we have re received this you know, thousands of year inheritance, this legacy that's been handed down to us, so that when you and I hear the word God, it's almost impossible for us to think of anything other than the one who created all that is. That just seems so obvious to us. Um, but it wasn't obvious to ancient peoples. Okay, it wasn't. Um, both the, the Old Testament um, is, is written in a time when uh, what we could call polytheism, right? Uh, it is just everywhere. I mean, one of the great gifts uh, that the Jewish people give to worldwide civilization is the belief in one God. And that, if we're honest, and again, this is hard for us because we have a certain way of thinking. A lot of us have different ways of thinking about how Scripture came about. Even that develops over time, right? There's good reason to think, for example, um, that when, when God uh, tells 
Abram, right? When God tells Abram to leave his homeland and to go to a place that God will show him, um, which is an enormous act of trust, isn't it? Uh, I don't know if you've done that. Some of you, maybe you have, I don't know. I'd like to kind of find that out, maybe. Has any, have you kind of woken up one day and thought that God had told you to, to leave and just go down and, you know, rent a U-Haul and pack up all your stuff and just start driving and that God would tell you when to stop? Anybody done that? I don't want to presume that you haven't. Anybody done that? That's a pretty crazy story. Um, we don't really have any reason to believe that um, when Abraham got that message from God, that Abraham understands at that point that this is the God of the universe, the God of all that is. I mean, in Abraham's day, I mean, all the little tribes had their own little tribal gods. Every people had their gods. And so Abraham probably thinks that this is, you know, going to be his sort of tribal god. It's, it's only over time that the people of Israel come to see this is not just a tribal god. Right? This is not just a tribal god. And so that, that can be a little unnerving if you, if, you, if you open up the, if you think that uh, the Bible is written sort of like from page one on. Right? Um, I, I don't know if that bothers you or not, but it'd probably the first thing I've ever said that bothered you. Um, but Genesis 1-1 was probably not the first thing that was written in the Bible. It's like it wasn't written like straight through. All right, this is a compilation of books, as we know, right? And so, uh, and that can be helpful because it reminds us, it reminds us that these, these scriptures were written in the context and they're addressing real people, and so were the creeds. The creeds are a summary of scripture. And so it was hard fought. I mean, think about how many times in scripture uh, the people of Israel are bumping up against surrounding peoples who have other gods, right? It's not coincidence that the very first commandment of the Ten Commandments is what? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Right? Um, you know, now it's interesting. I mean, it could, it could say, um, I mean, Israel's confession, as Jason told you, was what? Was what? What's the Shema? You know you're going to have quiz on Sunday morning, did you? <laughs> I'm a teacher. I want to see if anyone's learning anything here. I'm just standing up here talking to myself each Sunday. Yes, yes, yes. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Right? Um, and so, and you shall have no other, that I, the Lord your God, brought you out of the, the land of Egypt, and you shall have no other gods before me. So notice that even the first commandment seems to acknowledge that there were at least other purported gods around. <laughs> you shall have no other gods before me. You wouldn't have to say that if everyone just knew there was just one. Why would you say that? 
Um, so, and even in the New Testament, the same thing is true. And in the early church, the same thing is true. Um, one, of the, one of the beautiful things about that op first opening chapter of Genesis is if you read it against the context in which it was likely written, almost everything that God creates that's named there were things that other people thought were God's. Like the sun and the moon and the stars. Other people thought those were God's, right? And so, and, and different creatures and animals, they, they, they use those as, as gods. And so part of what that opening story is about is, is not just about God creating, although it is that. It's also a kind of direct assault against all the other stories out there which had sort of made the creation itself, parts of creation, the sun, the moon, the stars, different animals, had made those things divine. And so the opening chapter of Genesis is partly about sort of removing that sort of veneer of divinity from these created things. Now one of the other challenges for the early church, and the creeds were written in the first few centuries after the church, was trying to get clear about how, not, not so much how God created, but in, through what means. Did God, did God actually create the earth? The ancient Greeks, some of the ancient Greeks thought that the, the world was eternal, right? Um, and you might think, well, that's crazy. Well, I mean, that's, that's, one, that's one of our current scientific possibilities, right? Uh, in fact, it, it might actually, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very reputable uh, scientific theory. <coughs> That, that, the, that the universe actually always has been. Okay, that there was no time, there was no point at which there wasn't a universe. That it's eternal. And we can't get our heads around that. Okay, we can't get our heads around that. Um, but it's, rep, it's a reputable scientific theory. Okay, this is not kooks who think this. Okay, just we want to be fair about this. So when we hear that, you know, there were ancient Greeks who thought this too, um, again, for us, we think, well, no, there was a beginning. And that's fair enough. Um, but even in the early church, there was this thought, there were people who wondered, you know, has, has, the, uh, has the universe, has everything that we know seen visible and invisible, has it always been here, or was there a beginning? And if it came into be, by what? Well, one of the first things the early church had to deal with was these group of people called the Gnostics. Some of you have heard of the Gnostics. Uh, looks like Gnostics, if you know, know how to spell it, right? And, and Gnostics is that's the same root from which we get knowledge. Okay. 
All right. Same, it's the same thing, right? That's where the word knowledge comes from kenosis, right? Gnosis, right? It just means to know, right? It's, it's, a, it's a Greek word for, for knowledge. And, and the Gnostics are, they were an unusual group and they, there are lots of different kinds of Gnostics. We don't want to get into all of that today, but I don't only bring them up because this was one group within which that forced the church to articulate. I mean, they, they offered the church a service. Because <laughs> uh, over decades and decades and decades, the early church had to think through what's God's relationship to the world. Because the Gnostics thought that the world had been created not by God, but by some kind of intermediary figures because God, the world was actually pretty corrupt. The world was actually pretty evil. And so God being transcendent couldn't have dirtied God's hands creating the world. And so God created several there are several intermediary figures who they created the world and the point of salvation was to escape this evil world said the gnostics and to do that you needed secret knowledge hence right gnosis knowledge right you you needed that Okay, and so, and so they had these sort of secret societies, and they and they having the secret knowledge, it almost gave you like passwords, like divine passwords, that you could ascend through these different realms and escape from this world. Now, you, you might think that sounds crazy, and I have to admit, to me, it sounds a little crazy. That's because I just didn't live in that world. But think about it. Um, there's, there's a lot that's beautiful in this world, but there's also a lot of hardship and evil, and there are plenty of days when escape sounds pretty good, right? And we have to remember, most people 2,000 years ago uh, didn't live quite as comfortably as I do. <coughs> Nor did they live nearly as long, right? Median age, you know, might have been 35, 36 years. So all of us would have been long gone, sorry. Well, I think most of us, I can't, I don't know. I think, I, I, I think most of us would have been gone, maybe. Maybe a couple, three, maybe. I don't know. I think most of us are gone. A long time ago, right? Um, yeah, it's long gone. So again, it's, it's a different world, right? It's a different world. It's a, a lot harder world. And so um, I'm just trying to say, and, and so, the, so when the church wrestles with this very simple phrase that seems to us so obvious, it was hard fought. It was hard fought to be able to affirm that God is 
uh, to believe that believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. To say that, that all of this is made by God. Not by some intermediary. Uh, it's not eternal. But it's made by God. Now, this has implications, I think, for at least three things. We'll just sort of keep it Simple, right? It's church, so you have three things, right? So, um, or seven, but today we just got three because we don't have time for seven or 12. So let's talk about so some brief implications for what this phrase teaches us about God, what it teaches us about creation, and what it teaches us about us, okay? So what is this affirmation? What's at stake in saying that God the Father Almighty is maker of heaven and earth, all things visible and invisible? Well, the first thing is pretty obvious, right? That, that God really is sovereign over all. That God is not one of many divine beings. Uh, God didn't sort of uh, subcontract out Right, which is sort of sort of what you get the impression with the, the Gnostics, right? That, uh, that God can't be bothered with the earth. I mean, that would that would just be beneath God. Uh, but God kind of sub you know some pretty lower level subcontractors uh, to do the dirty work of that that pitiful earth, you know, where those poor beings down there hopefully can escape from it pretty soon. Now this is this God is, is very involved um, and and creates brings into existence and for the early church the question was that God the point was that God does this in freedom that the the world is not sort of uh, I mean another thing that a lot of people thought that the that the the world itself was divine. That this God is sovereign over, that there's a distinction between the creator and the created. Now, in some particularly Eastern religions, the world is itself divine, right? It's almost like an appendage, like it's like God grows an arm and that becomes the world, uh, which again seems very strange to us. Um, but the God creates something that isn't God. Okay? Um, and this is, this is something that God can do. Um, if, if Jason were here, our Hebrew uh, specialist, um, and so, so it's easy for me to say this since he's not here, because um, I'm the only one that knows how much I'm embarrassing myself. You can only imagine. But like in the opening, one of the words, the Hebrew, Hebrew uses two words for, that we translate as create or make. Um, but the one, bara, which is what opens in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That, that verb, that Hebrew verb, is only ever used in the Old Testament of God. Okay. Human beings never create in this way. And Hebrew scholars uh, have been wrestling, like, what's trying to be said here? Because God, this other word that humans, that's more like making and fashioning, God is said to do that too, but so are we. 
But there's this other word that's only used, you know, a handful of times, you know, um, in Genesis and used some in some of the prophets and other places. But somehow there's a sense that God is doing something that only God can do. That God is bringing into existence. I mean, I can, I can, I can make a loaf of bread. Um, but I'm not really bringing it into existence. I'm just forming and fashioning things that already existed. Right? Um, I mean, one of the first laws of physics, right, <laughs> is that you, you can make things change form, but you can't bring this matter into existence. You can change its form. Right? Um, but God, God's capable of bringing something into existence. And that makes God sovereign over all. So there's this fundamental difference between the creator and that which is made, that which is brought into existence. And that's a fundamental divide. So, but God creates in freedom. God doesn't create out of necessity. God doesn't have to create. And this goes back to this God the Father Almighty, that God is the eternal communion of Father, Son, and Spirit. And God, God desires to open up that eternal communion of love to that which is not God. This is... This is the miracle at the heart of creation. Is, is creation is in some sense the overflowing of God's love. Right? God's love can't be contained. And so God allows God's love to spill out in this creation of that which isn't God, that God desires to be part of God's communion, this intimate communion. So God creates the possibility for that by bringing that which is not God into existence so that it might be in communion with God in freedom. God creates in freedom. God does not create out of necessity. And God creates us, as we'll see, with equal freedom. Because for us to be in communion, we have to be willing to be in communion. <laughs> So God is other than creation, but also God is reflected in creation. That we can, we can learn something. This is clear scriptural teaching, right? We can learn something about God by what's created. So here's a tension. And if you're going to be, uh, think about Christian uh, teaching, you have to be... Uh, your mind has to be a little supple. Has to, it has to be uh, willing to hold things that aren't easy to hold together. So on the one hand, God is, is other than creation. God's not creation. Creation is something other. The created order is not divine. God is divine. So God is at one level completely other than creation. And yet... Creation reflects something of who God is. It's not divine, but it, it, it tells us something about who God is. Um, in a way that's not completely different uh, 
from when, when you make something, right? When you form or fashion something, it, it tells us a little bit about who you are. Uh, a little of you is in it, so to speak. It reflects something of you, which is why you care about it. Um, we have a beautiful painting on our wall, oil painting, in our living room. And a, a artist from Virginia gave her a picture. One of my favorite places in the world is the, the Balds uh, on Rome Mountain. And I took a landscape photograph and we asked her if she would paint that so we could have it in our living room. And it's, it's a gorgeous uh, oil painting. And like, and I'm glad we went up there and met her um, because once you met her, you can kind of see there's something of her in it, right? In some kind of way. And um, our children are already arguing, like, are we going to cut this up into five pieces when they, when they kick the bucket? Or what are we doing with this? Um, maybe it'll rotate, right? Like you get it for a three-month period. Who knows? Um, but they're already scheming. Uh, it's like, it's about time you, you own something that we want. After all these years, finally. <laughs> um, but if, if I was, if for some reason, I mean, I can't even, I mean, it pains me, even pains me to think that anyone would willingly destroy that piece of art, either intentionally or through just neglect, right? Um, not just because it's stunningly beautiful, although it is, but it would also just so dishonor this beautiful woman, part of whose beauty is reflected in what she has made, right? Now, magnify that as much as you need to, right? to get some sense of what, what we learn a little bit about. You can't learn everything. Scripture's clear. You can't learn everything you want to know about God just by looking at the world. A lot of it has to be revealed to us by God. But you can learn something about God's love and care for us in creation by the, the beauty that's around us. Um, so God is both sovereign but God is also reflected. A couple quick things about what it says about creation. In a similar way, creation itself, because it's, a, it's created, not divine, it's to be honored, but not worshipped. Okay? We don't worship creation. Right? We don't. Um, we do try to respect and honor it in the same way because we honor the one who made it. So on the one hand, it's not divine. And that's, that was important to the early church because most of the people around them did worship creation. They did. Uh, they worshiped the trees. They worshiped animals. Uh, they worshipped the stars, they worshipped the sun, they, they worshipped the created order. Um, and they thought their lives were somehow controlled by those forces, all those various forces. 
We don't worship. On the other hand, you have have to hold intention, right? We don't worship creation. But it is good, right? God declares it to be good. And when God looks over all that God has made, says it's very good. And that, that word that we translate as good in the Hebrew tov uh, can also mean beautiful, right? God declared that it's beautiful. Um, and it is. Um, so on the one hand, you could say, well, since it's not divine, it's just junk. And that's been, a, that's been one temptation, right, of the people of God. Well, since it's not divine, I mean, if it's divine, then you should, you know, like, you gotta, I mean, that, that would be uh, an admonition to take care of, but it's not divine, but it's good. It's God's good creation, which means all kinds of things. All kinds of things. And it's going to come, this, this notion of the goodness of creation is going to come back in, in the second part of the Creed when we talk about Jesus and the incarnation. Because it's going to make it really hard for Jesus to become a human being if the created order is itself evil. It's not. The created order is good. It's good. Has it, by the result of human sin, fallen and become twisted, distorted, become less than God wanted it to be? Yes. But it's still God's good creation. And, and the beautiful part is that in God trying to recreate things, to make all things new, when we get to the second article of Creed, you know, God doesn't just create, God recreates, restores, renews, refreshes, redeems. That God is even going to use the good creation to do that. In the person of Jesus Christ, who is himself both God and creature. And that's going to be so hard for us to try to get our heads around. But fortunately, we don't have to do that today. Right? It's communion Sunday. Right. Think about this beautiful thing that we do. Right? We take the gifts of God's good creation and we fashion them. Right? We don't create the seed, the wheat. We don't create wheat. Uh, we don't create, uh, even Wallace doesn't create grapes. Right? <laughs> Um, doesn't create them. Uh, now he can fashion. He can he can fashion uh, so, something that's really delectable from those grapes. Uh, some of you can bake a beautiful loaf. We can take those gifts, right? Those good gifts of God. We receive them from God, and God. God is capable. This is what we call a sacrament. Right? The sacrament where God takes everyday earthly things that are good and makes them more than they are for our good. Right? Doesn't make them less than what they are, makes them more than what they are. And that stands in for all of human life, that little act today, right? It reminds us that that's what God's doing with all of creation. God's giant restoration project is a matter of taking 
God's good gifts and making them more than what they are. That's what God wants to do with my life and your life, is take the giftedness, the giftedness of our creaturely personhood and make it more than what we are. God doesn't want... God thinks we're good. God thinks the world is good. And so as we'll see, as we move through the creed, this will come up again when we get to the third article of the creed and we think about what our future is because unlike the Gnostics, okay, we don't believe we're trying to escape the world. We don't think we're trying to escape the world. We think we're part of God's world that God is trying to redeem. So the whole point of human life is not to see if we can escape it. The whole part of our life is to see if we can be part of God's work of redeeming and restoring this good earth and all that is. So that has implications for us as we close. We're not like a lot of early thinkers who, and I should say, a lot of the, the Gnostics thought, I mean, this was an in, uh, a discussion internal to the church. Okay? The Gnostics um, themselves were reading scripture. They, they were trying to offer a way of understanding scripture. So they, this is not an outside force entirely. They were certainly influenced. But the point is, for them, our human lives were just run by and under the threat of all these other cosmic forces, which was fearful. And for a lot of us, you might think, well, that just seems crazy. But, I mean, they had names for them. And, and, and we have names for them, but we just don't think of them in the same terms, right? You've heard me talk about this before, um, but bears repeating. I mean, we don't name our gods as gods, but we still think of ourselves as being run by forces that are way beyond our control, right? I mean, when's the last time you heard that there's nothing we can much do about that. That's, that's just economic forces, right? Um, I mean, we have this sense that there are these forces that are suprahuman. They, they, are, they are more than the subtotal of human decisions. And it's true. It's what Paul calls the, the principalities and the powers, right? There are these forces that impinge upon us and, and it feels like they, they run the world. And they're not just people. And it was a fearful thing to live in that world where different co you felt like you were the pawn of different cosmic forces. And the good news in this uh, creed about God is the maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, is that God is sovereign and that we need not be afraid. Right? We need not be afraid. That God 
is capable of, of working for our good through all things, right? And, and that God ultimately is sovereign over the principalities and powers. I mean, what, what does Paul uh, announce there in Romans chapter 8, that passage that you all know so well? What does he say? I am convinced, Paul says. I am con this is, I'm convinced. I'm persuaded. It's my deepest conviction that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you can affirm that because God is the maker of all things. Right? God is the maker and creator of all things in heaven and on earth. Things visible and invisible. Right? That is good news in just a very few words. The, the creeds are dense, but there's a lot there. And it's gospel. It's good news. And on the days when it feels like our lives are being driven here and there by all the forces of the world and it's, our lives seem out of control, we can remember that we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things, visible and invisible. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks that you are the maker of all, that you have made us in your image, that all that we see around us you have brought into existence. And we give you thanks for its goodness. We ask your forgiveness for the ways that we have twisted it and made it less than good. But we pray that you would continue to be at work in and through us, and in and through others, that we might be used by you to be part of your work of renewal, part of your work of restoration, part of your work of redeeming your good world. May our lives reflect this deep conviction that you are the maker of all. We pray this through the one through whom you have made all things. Jesus Christ.